You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Jack Rubenstein. Uh, he's an associate professor of medicine at the University of uh, Cincinnati. He's a cardiologist and affiliated with multiple hospitals in the area, including uh, Cincinnati Veterans Affairs Medical Center and University of Cincinnati Medical Center. And we're going to be talking about uh, you know, Jack's current work and position. So, Jack, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me about, uh, you know, I have my notes, uh, you recently authored a publication called The Perfect Dose. What's the, uh, you know, the book about, and what was the reason that you wrote it? Great, great, great. So, um, so yeah, the book is called The Perfect Dose, as you mentioned. It's a medical thriller, if you will. Uh, it is centered around a Midwest physician that discovers a new way of treating a uh, common disease, heart failure. So, uh, the main character, Michael Mann, is getting grilled by the House Oversight Committee on Drug Prices. Uh, because he refuses to sell the drug and the algorithm behind the drug for less than a million dollars per patient. So, of course, um, the Congress people and the representatives are very upset with him. And um, that's how the book starts. It starts with the conundrum of how much money should we be charging for drugs and who at the end is responsible for the amount of money that we charge for the drugs. Um, so that's that's what the book is about. It, it got started, or the thought process uh, in my mind got started, when uh, when I have to face the situation with my patients all the time. I mean, we live in a capitalist society here in the United States, but at the same time, we do have a pretty significant social uh, uh, welfare system through which we provide health care. So the balance between social well-being and the capitalist uh, uh, push to develop new things and make money is 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 a tension that we're all living through. So what I wanted to do, I wanted to explore uh, I wanted to explore the the conundrum, but instead of exploring it through an academic paper, I thought it would be much more interesting to explore it through a novel where people can identify with the different characters and and prompt a more open conversation about the pluses and the minuses of our current healthcare system. What's it like for your patients? I mean, what is the cost per month for various drugs? You know, what's the range? Correct, right? So it could be anything from literally pennies, right? Certain drugs are generic, and it could be literally pennies or downright free, depending on what kind of insurance they have, depending on uh, what kind of medications we're talking about. But as we've seen in the uh, in the media lately, uh, the price could go up to tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the type of drug. Uh, one of the characters uh, that is at least inspired by, the main character is at least slightly inspired by this Martin Scarelli character who is in real life a person who purchased a drug from a pharmaceutical company and then jacked up the prices uh, several fold 
and that prompted a oversight committee hearing on on exactly that issue. And while he did finally get arrested, he never really got arrested for uh, increasing the prices on the drugs because that was 100% legal what he was doing. And uh, and some may argue uh, that not only was it legal what he was doing, but he was giving his uh, shareholders the most benefit he could derive from a commodity, in this case being a drug that other people needed. So while he became the poster child for everything that's bad about pharma, he actually, in fact, has a point. Well, he was a very uh, a non-appealing character in real life. Uh, he did have a point about how uh, that he could actually make the amount of money that he was making because it was not only legal, it was probably, in, uh, you could argue, was in the best interest of his shareholders to sell the drug at the most, at the highest price that the market could tolerate. Well, it's weird, you know, because there's that, you know, there's the balance between helping the most number of people, but then there's also, like you said, you know, making sure shareholders make their money. Correct, right? But let, but, but let me... Let me let me let me get let so that's exactly what the book is about. But let's get into this a little bit, right? Where is it written though that we have a responsibility to help the most amount of people? Like that's an instinct that that I have as a physician, as a scientist, as, uh, due to my upbringing, right? But it's really not been. Uh, we could argue that it's really not a shared value to help the most amount of people. A lot of people would argue in the states and around the world that maybe the shared value would be to do the best for yourself. And if everybody did the best for themselves, then everybody would succeed independently. Now, while I don't agree with this uh, concept, there are many people uh, who do agree with this concept. And it's, it's evidenced by the healthcare system that we have, which at the end of the day is a reflection of our elected, the people that we re- elect to represent us to make the laws. So mm-hmm. I don't think the value of uh, helping the most people is actually a shared value among all of us in the United States. Hey, you know, it's weird. It's very true. I mean, just because it's a medicine, um, you know, I could say, well, it should be a public good because it helps people. But then why right. can't you say that about any other product and say, oh, you, you should charge only the bare minimum and, you know, make no money on it. And there's correct. Right. Yeah, and there's this balance too. Like people rail against pharma. Oh, they, they charge, all, they make billions. Well, they spend billions to try to find drugs and stuff too. So it's, it's hard to figure out where things should should lie, you know. Correct, correct. So, so this is where I, exactly why I wrote the novel to try to get into these details instead of this black and white thing that we tend to be stuck in uh, by following the media. Uh, but let me add another twist to this, right? A lot of the drugs that pharma actually pursues and sells for a lot of money actually come from academia, right? And academia is funded in large, large part by the NIH. So the academia is funded by us, the taxpayers who pay money into the NIH, who then send money into academic medical centers to discover new things. And then here's the kicker, and this is a, absolutely 100% real. This is the part that's real in the book. This, uh, these discoveries get licensed to pharma companies who then make a lot of money off of them by charging the same taxpayers uh, uh, very high, uh, very high fees or a very high price for the same medications that the taxpayers themselves actually uh, funded. Does that make sense? Hmm. Um, okay. Can, can you say that again? Just restate it a slightly different way. Gotcha. So, so one of the arguments that you hear from pharma is we've put in a lot of money to develop these drugs, right? So therefore, we have to charge money to get our investment back and to put that money back into R and D. And it's a valid argument, and in some cases, that's exactly what happens. But in other cases, the the original research and development that comes uh, that that pharma uses 
to develop a drug actually doesn't come from their own labs. It actually comes from the academia, from academia, from academic medical centers. So what happens is that academic medical centers petition the NIH, petition different, uh, different government organizations for money. The NIH and these organizations fund the labs, make the discoveries, and then when these discoveries have any kind of uh, uh, clinical, uh, potential clinical use, then the pharmaceutical companies come in license the product or license the intellectual property from the university, and then they use that license to actually make the drug and sell it for a much higher price. So at the end of the day, uh, when they sell the drug to, uh, to us back as clients, they're actually selling back to us, the taxpayers, the, uh, the investment that we've already paid for initially. So pharma gets to have its cake and eat it too. Hmm. Very interesting. Does, does that make sense or should I... Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. I didn't realize that. Um, so that so that was part the is. Book, the, was I'm the sorry. Book, go ahead. Was the book therapy for you in order for you to? <laughs> I mean, I mean, argue out different concepts in your mind or what? Oh, absolutely. And why did absolutely. You, you know, why did you write the book and what did it do for you? First of all, absolutely. And for readers. Absolutely. So yes, it was absolutely therapeutic, right? Absolutely. I am frustrated with a lot of parts of the medical system in the states. I'm also very much frustrated with having or trying to have conversations with people uh, that are somewhat knowledgeable but not very knowledgeable about the current healthcare system. So they tend to pick up uh, tidbits of information here and there, um, and it's very difficult to really pull out graphs and figures and have a very uh, long and intelligent conversation with people who are not experts in the field. So through this book, I'm able to explain a lot of uh, difficult, not only political, but also scientific and medical concepts, but without definitely talking down to people what, by making it interesting. I added some a, a lot of bad words in there. I added some raunchy bits to it. So this way I could sort of get it out of my system, but at the same time also help people understand uh, a, a, part of, a, a part of the system that they may not be familiar with, but they will surely affect them at some point when they have to interact with our with our own healthcare system, pharma, drugs, et cetera. So yeah, it was absolutely therapeutic for me and it was actually a joy to write as I enjoyed the 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 creative process very much. Hmm. Okay. Um did you share this with colleagues and other people in the medical industry or did you just you know, did you do it under a pen name or your name or you know So so it? no no, I, I did it under my own name. Uh, everything is fiction. I mean, it's based on some real parts, but the whole story is absolutely fiction. Um, so I wrote it under my own name, and um, and I shared it with a lot of colleagues as I was writing it. I shared it with a lot of scientists, of physicians, nurses. Uh, so they provided very, very valuable insight. Uh, Jan Vig, who is the uh, owner of the publishing oh, Jan house. Vig? Oh. Yeah, yeah. He's the owner of the publishing house. He, he provided a lot of really crucial information as well. Um, so I shared it with that. He's the one that's at the, uh, the Einstein College of Medicine, right? Correct, correct, correct. Yeah, he, he, he wears yeah, I many hats. I talked to him a few months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's an amazing okay. guy. He wears many hats. Um, so he made sure that the science was tip-top. Uh, of course, we had an editor and whatnot for all those parts, but uh, but no, people liked it. People gave me a lot of positive feedback, and then I sent it out into the world, a little bit like like sending your kid out into the world. And uh, mm. it's available through Amazon, both as a Kindle and uh, as a print version. And the reviews have been very, 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 very good. I've I've heard from scientists, uh, from uh, doctors, from nurses, from lay people, 
and almost all the reviews have been very very positive so uh so it's been it's been very well received and i'm i'm happy slash humbled by the warm reception that it's gotten maybe you'll be in the next uh atul gawande you know medical writer <laughs> So I, honestly, it was it, I was more inspired, and I actually reached out to this author. I was more inspired by Samuel Shem. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, The House of God, which is sort of a cult classic. Actually, it's not sort of. It's an absolute cult classic within the medical field. It was written back, I want to say, in the 1970s. I may be wrong. Uh, but it really set the standard for what medical writing should be. Uh, from a fiction perspective. And uh, I reached out to him. I sent him an email. He emailed me back very nicely. Uh, he has not read the book, so I'm hoping one of these days he will read it. But if anything, it was fa- it was inspired by, by The House of God by Samuel Sean. Yeah, my wife loves all these medical shows. So I think I'm going to get her a copy of your book. I think she'll like it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so you could argue that a lot of the medical shows are written and their characters are based on the characters that that the House of God uh, presented to us back back thirty, forty years ago. Um, almost all the characters that are on the TV shows and whatnot are based on that. But uh, but the medical field has has changed a lot. The characters are now different. The interactions at the hospital level between the attending physicians and the resident physicians has clearly changed along with the times. So this book, I think, really reflects what's happening now, this day and age, as it pertains to to the workings of the hospital, the workings of the scientists, how things go back and forth now, which are, I, I think, significantly different from uh, 30, 40 years ago when The House of God was initially written. Uh, so maybe we can use it as a new sort of standard going forward. Um, do you give the book to your patients? I do not. I do not. I'm I'm purposely not giving the book away because I've never read a book that uh, that somebody has given me. I always read books that I purchase with my own money. Uh, I have recommended it though to a few patients, and uh, I've gotten some pretty good feedback from them as well. Um, they, they they there's a lot of there's a several clinical cases going on. So uh, if you're a patient and want to know what their doctor is feeling as he's talking to you, so there's a lot of behind the scenes. Uh, uh, scene, behind the scenes scenes in in the book, so um, so that they've appreciated having an insight into what's happening after the doctor leaves the room. Oh, they don't just think they're playing Angry Birds or something, or <laughs> exactly. No, there's there's a lot of background, right? And there's also a lot of personal background, right? What do doctors feel when a patient gets sick? When a patient does well? When a patient doesn't do well? Um, and it also uh, speaks to the scientist, right? The character is a physician and a scientist. So it also speaks to how difficult it is to bring scientific findings to the bedside and all of the uh, obstacles that, that have to be overcome, including political, financial, personal. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very long process, um, but I try to keep it uh, very light and entertaining throughout. People have called it a page turner, which makes me super happy. Well, tell me about some of these insights. So what's, um, you know, I, you don't have to give away the whole book, but. What are some of the insights? What do doctors think, or what are some of the difficulties in being one? Like, what's what's the mindset you've had with certain patients, you know, and how gotcha. does it affect you? Gotcha. So, um, so for example, as a doctor in an academic center, you're constantly not only taking care of patients, which you are, of course, but you're also taking care of the residents, the resident physicians who are in training, right? So you have to be very mm-hmm. cognizant of what the resident doctors know and what they don't know. And how do you give feedback in real time, particularly when like a patient is very sick and you have to explain to to another doctor why they did something right or why they did something wrong, right? So uh, so the doctor has to be very much thinking about 
what the other doctors are thinking, what the nurses are thinking, what the doc- what the patient is thinking. Uh, also, family members. So there's family members play an important role in this book. So um, it, it the book takes into account very much how the back and forwards between the physician and the family uh, and, uh, result or change the outcome of the patient. So. Um, I, I, I give a lot of separate insights into that. Um, and, but again, it's, it's, as you read the book along, it's not spelled out in so many words. You just get the feel for what's happening, um, behind the scenes. Well, what's, you know, again, without saying who the patient is or mm-hmm. anything, what are some of your most, what are some anecdotes? What are some patient interactions that really have stuck out in your mind? Maybe gotcha, that led gotcha. to you writing the book. You know that affects oh, you. It doesn't have to be bad. It could be good. No, absolutely. No, no. I can. I'm happy to. I'm happy to share. So, uh, one of the things that inspired this book is I've been working on repurposing a drug uh, for the treatment of heart failure. So that is clearly the inspiration for the book. I've been working on for about ten years now. There's a drug called probenicid. It's an old, old drug. It's been around for sixty, seventy years, and it's been used to treat gout mostly. You know, like when you're big toe gets inflamed, uh, my lab has some really interesting findings that it can actually be used to treat people with heart failure. So um, since the drug is very safe, we've had a lot of back and forth with patients, uh, whether we can give it to them, right? And the, the answer is usually we can, by law anyway, as long as the drug is FDA approved, we can go off label and we do so all the time. And occasionally we've actually gone, we occasionally, we and the people around the country have have read of our work and occasionally have gone off label, of course, with the appropriate permissions and whatnot to see if uh, they can take care of their patients with an off-label use of an old drug. So, so that clearly um, educated a lot of what the book is about. Uh, but for reasons of making it fiction and for reasons that the plot will, will will clarify, we had to add more context to this and not just make it a single drug that we're repurposing. But the information that I've gotten and the uh, back and forth that I've had with the FDA, with private industry, with uh, venture capital firms really educated how I uh, how I explain this process in the book. So if you're interested about knowing how to repurpose drugs, and how, in my opinion, I think repurposing drugs has a lot of potential in the future, um, then you can read all about it in the book. Yeah, because I was just going to ask you about that, actually. I think that'd be a great area because these drugs, at the very least, they've shown no horrific side effects. And they've Correct. passed the clinical trial stage and all that. And Correct. You know, they're helping, helping with one thing. So it would be a much faster process to piggyback on that if they're able to be used for other off-label purposes. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of data for this. So the the numbers that are thrown out is that it's less than 1% of the drugs that start in the pharma pipeline actually make it to the bedside. Um, and I've spoken, spoken with a lot of people from pharma, and the number is probably closer to like 0.5%. Uh, and the time it takes is about 20 years. So it's it's an incredible time frame that, that's required to get a new drug from idea to the bedside. When you're looking at drugs that have been repurposed, the number goes down to about 10 or 14 years, which is right smack in the middle of where we are right now. And uh, the price is significantly lower since uh, there's a lot of options in the end. There's a lot of legal, excuse me, regulatory options that can be used in order to harness the power of the history of this drug and the safety of the drug in order to be quicker to the bedside. So, uh, that's something that that people have taken advantage of in the past, and that's something that I'm trying to use to to our advantage to get this drug to the bedside. Also, too, I mean, you'd have if you can get it, you know, vast amounts of data of different people using it, the side effects, 
Um, Absolutely. And if you discover off-label uses, that would probably inform you about how the drug's mechanism if it's not clear in the first place. Correct. So Absolutely. So helps this, I'm, but affects that. Huh? Okay. Maybe that means it's interacting in this pathway that we didn't know about. You know. That's exactly right. So that's how we came across it. We actually came across this by serendipity. We were just lucked into it. Uh, but exactly what you're describing, right? So there's been many, many studies that have shown its safety and actually a couple of studies that have actually by accident uh, at least alluded to the fact that it can work on the heart, even though the authors at that point didn't recognize what they were looking at. So uh, drug repurposing has a lot of potential, I think, and um, and it's, it's ripe to be exploited now that we have uh, all these huge databases and all these ways of querying data that we didn't before. So uh, I think drug repurposing has a lot of potential. So how else has it affected you to, uh, you know, to write this book? I mean, like you said, or I said, and then you said mm -hmm. it's, uh, it was therapeutic for you. But, you know, what's different nowadays about you and about the way you do things now that the book? Oh, absolutely. Done? So, so, so when when you read, when I read uh, novels, right, it gives you an insight into how other people are thinking, right? Um, it's I think people that read novels have are have a, are closer in touch with uh, with other people and their feelings right because you can get behind the scenes a little bit you can feel sort of what other people are feeling um so i had sort of that effect but on steroids because as you write and you describe people one of the things that i was most uh concerned about is that i wouldn't uh be able to describe people in a way that seemed authentic in a way that seemed real right um they're characters that are international characters there's a character that is gay there's a character that's been married forever. There's a character that's divorced, right? So one of the concerns that I had is that I wasn't was not going to be able to present the characters in an authentic manner. So it gave me uh, a lot of pause when I was writing the characters to look at how other people behave, to try to think how are they thinking, what are they thinking, why would they do such a thing. Um, so I think maybe my wife would disagree, but I think that it's made me a slightly better person, a person that's slightly more in touch with other humans. Um, so I hope that that's correct. When my wife listens to the interview, I've, I'll, I'll see her face and see if she agrees or disagrees. Well, if you guys get into a, you know, a low level argument, she goes, I'm not one of the characters in your book. <laughs> and you know that, that you either got her or you don't got her. So. Yeah, absolutely. And and we've actually had some conversation around that, but I go back to the same thing I keep saying. Oh, I These figured. characters are all fiction. <laughs> They're all fiction. Some of the things are saying that to you. Uh, oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And, but I keep telling her the same thing I tell everyone. They're like, isn't this character look like this character? I'm like, absolutely not. There's all fiction. I'm just making stuff up. If you feel reflected in the characters, if you feel like the characters are speaking to you, then I think I've done my job. Uh, if you think the characters are authentic and uh, they, the characters make you laugh, make you cry, make you upset at them for their decisions, then I really think I've done my job. Well, tell me a little bit more about um, your patients. If, if they were characters... What kind of characters would they be? You know, what are they, like are there three different kinds of patients or five different main kinds of patients, and what do they do? Like, what are their characteristics? Gotcha. So I'll give you one of the tidbits, and it's a it's a quick throwaway line in in the book, um, but I've actually talked about this with other doctors around the world, really, and we've all sort of come to the same conclusion that the meaner the patient is, the better they're going to do. 
So if you have a patient comes into the hospital and he or she is super nice to you, uh, their outcome is going to be significantly worse than somebody that's mean and throwing plates and yelling at the nurses, right? And I know this is completely observational, anecdotal, and I have absolutely no evidence to back this up. Uh, but it's surprising sometimes to see how the, meaner, the meanest patients uh, usually have no complication and do fine. And the nicest patients always seem to have complications and bad outcomes. I'm sure there's selection bias. I'm sure there's memory bias in this. Uh, but we talk a little bit about that in the book, and we talk a little bit about that uh, amongst ourselves as physicians, how the mean patients seem to do better than the nice patients. Well, I think that happens in a lot of aspects of life. You have people that are fighters that will mm -hmm. fight to the death, and they're going to do far better than the people that just give in. Huh, you know, interesting. I, I mean, you know, it, there's many examples of this, unfortunately. I mean, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's crossing a boundary, but... And, yeah, no, I, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting point. It's an interesting point uh, about fighters or not fighters. It could be. It could be. Um, we've just usually just kid around about that, but that's an interesting point. I've seen fighters in many industries, and like I said, not literally boxers, but people that uh, mm -hmm. they're just ornery and stubborn and all that stuff. And, they yeah, they do tend to uh, to have better success than the ones that just lay down and give up, you know. So. Yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough, though. I wouldn't necessarily equate being nice to giving up, but it's maybe a variable that I'm not considering, right? Um, mm. But anyway, it's just one of those throwaway lines. There's a character in the book that's sick, and uh, and she is very nice. Uh, so when she doesn't do very well, the characters just sort of banter around that. So those are, again, one of those like the behind-the-scenes kind of stuff that you can expect from the book. And um, any other patient types? You know, are there ones that like question you to death? <laughs> or the ones that just say, "Okay, doc, sounds great." They do whatever you say, or you know, like what uh, what other personality types do you run into? Absolutely. So, so you definitely have the 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 patients that are very uh, happy to see you and will follow whatever you say. Um, one of the characters in the book actually is is very wealthy and plays into the storyline. So, so there's the expectation of service. There's the expectation that since you are well off. You deserve to have a better outcome. You deserve to have the best care possible. And it, of course, plays into the storyline as well about how uh, money affects how people get treated and how we how we expect people that have more money or how some people can expect people to have more money to do better than people that are not as financially well off. And in the States, we've sort of balanced that a little bit, and not to give too much of the book away, uh, but part of the book takes place outside of the United States, and you can actually see how uh, how patients are, are have different expectations of outcomes in different parts of the uh, different parts of the world. I also approach very, I also approach how uh, the families react in different parts of the world. So in the United States, for example, it's it's not common to see uh, family members at the bedside. So they come in after work or very early in the morning, but it's not common to have family members at the bedside. Um, while in other countries, I'm not giving too much of the book away, uh, it's very common to have families literally camp out, like sleep on the hallways or sleep outside or uh, oh, wow. or spend significant amounts of time in the waiting rooms. So, um, so I talk about that a little bit as well, try and give people a little bit of an international perspective. Because while the book does focus on the issues in the United States, if we have perspective of other countries, then it lets us see things in a slightly different light. Okay, that's really cool. Yeah, thank you. So what's it like for you to be a patient? You know, again, I hope that you never get sick. But, uh, <laughs> no, I hear you. When you've gone to the doctor, what what is it like for you? Do you do you feel like, oh, man, or like <laughs> 
So, so as a patient and as a family member of a patient, you really try to get out of the way. I think that that's what I would prefer mostly with uh, with other uh, with other doctors. Whenever I'm taking care of other doctors, we all sort of know that we're nervous about taking care of another doctor. So what I try to do is I try to stay out of the way as much as humanly possible, either with myself or with family members. I may chime in a little bit. I may sort of translate a little bit. Uh, occasionally, you may go behind the scenes and say, do you really mean this? Do you really mean that? But by and large, we try to stay as quiet and as out of the way as, as humanly possible because you really don't want to you don't want to have that added pressure on the physician who's taking care of you or your family members. So that's what I try to do. And uh, I, most of the times when I take care of fellow physicians, that's what they try to do. And I think it's the it's what we most appreciate. Just chiming in as needed, but trying to stay in the background as much as possible. Well, what about with yourself or family? If there's any medical problems, do you go into like figuring it out mode? Or do you say, I, go to a doctor and let them figure it yeah. out? You step aside that way too. So, so my kids are very upset with me because every time they have something wrong with them, I'll tell them that whatever is wrong with them will fall off and will grow back, and they do not take me horribly seriously. And the reason I do this is, uh, A, to make a joke, of course, and just to keep it light, but B, because I try not to play doctor very much. Uh, if it's something minor, I can always get away with that. If it's something minor to moderate, then I can always call up a buddy and, and ask for a quick opinion and then move on. But if it's anything more than that, I just stay quietly in the background and, and let things play themselves out. I mean, we've had a couple of health issues here and there in, in my family. But by and large, as long yeah. as they're with reasonable physicians, and it's, it's almost always the case, uh, I try to sneak in the, uh, sneak in the background and just stay there um, as to not give more pressure to an already stressful situation. Well, that's good, yeah. I, you know, that's why I want to ask you a lot of these perspectives mm -hmm. and stuff. So what... One more thing I want to ask you, and um, no. I know this is you know, a difficult question, but how do you know if your doctor, for whatever reason, is good or bad for you? <laughs> what are, what that are is... some things you could either ask them or what things to look for? What would you say that would make a good doctor versus a crappy one that doesn't care about you? You know, that is a great, great question. Uh, and we're all trying, really, uh, all of us doctors are trying to figure that out. All of us as patients are trying to figure that out. Um, I, I trained and I grew up in Mexico, so I have a slightly different perspective uh, by seeing uh, doctors in Mexico. And I've been to several countries around the world as a physician and, uh, and uh, as a scientist. And I can tell you that it's not an easy question to answer. Um, most of the time you want to be, if you're in a healthcare system, sort of like a healthcare system in the United States, there's a system in place to ensure that most of us, if not absolutely all of us, reach a minimum threshold, meaning that we have a threshold of knowledge and we've passed the test that we've had to pass in order to provide at least relatively standardized uh, treatment. Uh, outside the United States, um, it's not so clear how standardized the treatment is. So a lot of times doctors uh, uh, become famous or become uh, become uh, the doctors or or the, the 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 key doctors in a certain region more by reputation than by actually by what they actually do or how well how good they are so unfortunately it's very 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 difficult to tell even internally um, we have to ask a lot of doctors internally say oh which surgeon would you recommend um, or which doctor would you recommend uh, because it's really not an easy uh, question to answer. Um, so I can't give your listeners uh, a lot of details here, not because I don't want to, because it's not really easy to figure out. 
Yeah, I can I can say that, you know, having seen doctors, uh, you know, plenty of them in my life too, like some of the ones that seem to be technically the most proficient have don't have much of a bedside manner. You know, every, yeah, well, it's like anything else, they seem to be skewed. Like the ones that may be super nice and friendly, I mean, mm-hmm. who knows, maybe they're not technically great. We don't, you know, mm-hmm. we don't know, but but it does seem to be the other way. The ones that yeah. are like really technically great, just they don't have any bedside manner, but you know, anecdotally or from nurses or other people saying they're like, Oh, that person's really good, but you know, they're not the friendliest. Yeah, so and we and we've thought about that a lot, but you also have to remember that the doctoring is a very broad field, right? So some people you don't yeah. care about their bedside because you just want them to be the most uh, proficient at whatever procedure they do, right? But other people right. you really want them to be careful and patient and listen to you because they if somebody is very rough at the bedside, then they may miss a very discreet diagnosis that that would have changed the outcome, right? So it's it's difficult. It's very very difficult to figure this out. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess maybe surgeons and anesthesiologists don't need to have good bedside manner because they don't really... Correct, right? But, but you want your pediatrician... Theory. Absolutely, and you need a pediatrician to be spectacular because you want him or her not to miss the the diagnosis or to not to rush by or not to like minimize a mother's complaint, right? So so it's different, it's different for different specialties, and in all of them, it's very difficult to tell unless you're knee-deep into that specialty. Okay. Uh, I guess just last question or so. Since mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've got a live one. I've got you. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Why, why do you think most people become doctors and then after X number of years in practice, you know, let's say 10 years, mm-hmm. how does it change? You know, like, how does it feel to be a new doctor and why do people mm-hmm. become doctors? And I know there's various reasons, but how does I'm it feel after no. many years of in practice? Now, you're asking a really pertinent question. So physician burnout is absolutely a thing, right? Um, and we're trying hard as a medical community to avoid uh, or to minimize uh, physician burnout. But it can be a very, very stressful job, right? And it it really does uh, weigh on you. The fact that you have to do very similar things over and over and over again, right? Doctors tend to be very pigeonholed into inpatient, outpatient, doing surgeries, doing this. Um, so it tends to be very, very um, difficult to uh, to keep a good attitude throughout uh, throughout years and years of uh, of practice. So uh, some doctors change uh, change careers; they go into private uh, into private industry. Others, like me, we decide to write a book to get our heads out of the certain spot where we're at. Um, so it definitely does weigh on people, and um, and the medical community is very much recognizing uh, that physician suicide is a real thing. That physician burnout is a real thing, and uh, and we're all very much aware of this. Is there a way of fixing it? I don't know if there's a clear fix all around, but it's definitely something that we're all very, very much aware of. Well, why is there burnout, and why is there suicide in the physician profession? Is it because they they can't help many people, and a lot of people just are going to die no matter what they do, or... What's the reason, do you think? Mm, I, I think I, I don't want to give you a wishy-washy answer, but I think it's very much multifactorial. So so there's 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 the workload, that's for sure. Uh, there's the increasing amount of paperwork that is needed with decreased face-to-face time with patients. There is the increased demand for turning in RVUs, relative value units, which is basically how we get paid, or a lot of us get paid. Um, there's a lot of pressure for these peer-to-peer phone calls, which have us doctors interacting with uh, with doctors that are hired by industry to try to decrease the cost of, uh, of certain procedures or try to decrease the amount of procedures that we order. So all of this sort of adds, 
Yeah, all of this adds up. And, and again, it may be terrible. It may not be terrible, right? Because at the end of the day, we have a healthcare system that is a mishmash of capitalist and, and socialist, right? So so there's competing right. demands on both sides. So the industry, the, 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 the farm industry, the insurance industry, it is in their best interest to make money. I mean, they make no bones about it, right? So if they can convince us not to order a test or if they can convince us not to do a certain procedure, then that's in their best interest, right? Um, so they have a job to play or, or uh, in, in the process, right? We may not like it necessarily, but again, going back to the start of the conversation and the start of the book, this is the kind of healthcare system that we as a country have decided works for us because this is the elected officials that, we, that, that are making the rules. If we don't like this, then it's up to us to change the elected officials to push it in one direction or the other. Uh, but at the end of the day, we are responsible. We citizens of this country are responsible for uh, for our healthcare system, including the good parts, the bad parts, and the frankly painful parts. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, I guess it's like what they say about capitalism: it's the worst system except for every other system. So it's probably <laughs> the same thing with the medical system, you know. Well, well, yes and no. Yes and no. I'll give you a little bit of pushback here, right? So we have right. many, many countries around the world that have experimented with many, many different types of healthcare systems, right? And we have chosen this particular mishmash of capitalist and socialist for our own healthcare system that works in a lot of different levels. There's absolutely a lot of good things about our system, right? Uh, but there's also a lot of bad things about our system. So only if we understand these these issues, only if we elect the people that are consistent with what we want the country to look like, uh, only then will we have a healthcare system that is more uh, consistent with where we think it should be. And if we think it's fine as it is, then we should keep voting for the same people because that's what they're going to do. Yeah. I guess the moral of the story is never get sick and never get old. That's what I tell people. <laughs> and if you, you know what? If we could, things, you're good. If we could, that would be great. But I guess the moral of the story that I would take from this is is the more we know, the better decisions we can make. Sure, yeah. Well, very good. Well, it's been a really great call with you. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I get into the technical and scientific and medical aspects, but uh, this other perspective is, like, super important. So I'm glad we great. talked Thank about you. this. And, uh, yeah, so uh, say the name of your book again and where people can get it. And uh, I definitely am, like I said, I'm getting a copy for my wife and probably for myself, too. But, uh Sounds like a really great book. So where can people get it? Great. Thank you. So the name of the book is The Perfect Dose, and probably the easiest way of finding it is through Amazon, where it's available on Kindle and also paper version. All right. Well, very good. Well, Jack, great. thanks for coming on. And, uh, no, absolutely. Thank I you. appreciate it. No, thank you. That was a lot of fun. I, I much appreciate it. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.